This talk, Winners, Wasters, and the Shadow of Envy, emerges from a long time spent thinking about the emotion of envy and about its relationship to conceptions of justice. Can everybody hear me? Okay. Tell me if I start mumbling. My talk has three parts. The first takes us through debates about envy in political theory, writ broadly to include psychoanalytic and feminist theory. The second examines the representation of envy as an economic and political affect in the Middle English poem, Winner and Waster, or Winner and Wastur for the Middle English scholars who are here. And the third returns to the question of how we should think about envy as a political emotion. Now, it might seem that if you are interested in justice, envy would be the last place you would start, as it is infamously a nasty, irrational, and petty way of feeling. And yet, it is also an emotion understood as distinctively human. If from Aristotle we gain an understanding of human beings as political animals, from Hobbes and others we might understand ourselves as envious animals, homo invidiosus. In Leviathan, Hobbes observes that, quote, certain living creatures as bees and ants live sociably one with another, and so are numbered by Aristotle among the political creatures. And yet they cannot communicate with each other about how to act toward the common benefit. Such a silence is made peaceable by the fact that for these animals, the common good does not differ from the private. By contrast, and here's, read some bits that are on the slide, humans are, quote, continually in competition for honor and dignity the consequence of which is envy and hatred and finally war. Furthermore, quote, man whose joy consisteth in comparing himself with other men can relish nothing but what is eminent, end quote. What set, sets human sociability apart from animal sociability then is a constitutive conflict between the private and the common good. In Hobbes's formulation, the good is actually defined by the fact that one possesses more of it than another. That's what makes it good. If one's joy derives from comparison, then the common good might well be an oxymoron. Without committing myself to a Hobbesian view of human society and bracketing for now the question of whether enviousness is what separates us from animals and makes us human, I'd like to stay with the observation that theorizing enviousness has long been a central aspect of theorizing justice. For Hobbes, human tendencies toward envy and competition demand the agreed upon subjection to a sovereign power. His conception of envy as leading to a subordination of desire to the commonwealth has much in common with Freud's theories of civilization, as Freud locates envy as an essential part of the etiology of all forms of social organization, familial, military, ecclesiastical, civic, and all conceptions of justice. Freud explains that envy provides the impetus behind forming a community based on common goods and rules that demand the sacrifice of individual pleasure for the sake of the whole. The herd instinct or group feeling, he explains, quote, grows up first of all in a nursery containing many children out of the children's relation to their parents, and it does so as a reaction to the initial envy with which the elder child receives the younger one. The elder child would certainly like to put its successor jealously aside, to keep it away from the parents, and to rob it of all its privileges. But in face of the fact that this child, like all that come later, is loved by the parents in just the same way, 
and in consequence of the impossibility of maintaining its hostile attitude without damaging itself, it is forced into identifying with the other children." End quote. Envy leads to community. Freud concludes that, quote, social justice means that we deny ourselves many things so that others may have to do without them as well, or what is the same thing may not be able to ask for them. This demand for equality is the root of social conscience and the sense of duty. Envy leads to justice. On the other side, we have the 20th century's greatest work of political philosophy, according to Martha Nussbaum and the others, um, A Theory of Justice. And in A Theory of Justice, John Rawls directly takes on Freud's theory, as envy is understood to be a threat to the well-ordered society he proposes. For Rawls, envy is a human tendency that must be addressed, but it neither animates claims for justice, nor does it pose a true threat to the just society. For, he says, quote, a rational individual is not subject to envy, at least when the differences between himself and others are not thought to be the result of injustice and do not exceed certain limits. This principle informs many aspects of a theory of justice, as in the cataloging of primary goods to include self-respect. We derive our sense of self-worth, he says, not by comparison, but by pursuing a rational plan of life. And, quote, finding our person and deeds appreciated and confirmed by others, end quote, whom we esteem. If someone is fulfilled in his own life, he will welcome the attainments of others, and if self-confident, will not begrudge admiration for other people. Quote, taken together, these features of a well-ordered regime diminish the number of occasions when the less favored are likely to experience their situation as impoverished and humiliating. Even if they have some liability to envy, it may never be strongly evoked. Rawls' dismissal of envy as any kind of real threat to a truly just society has thus been the focus of critiques leveled on one side by those who address politics from the perspective of psychoanalysis, which makes envy foundational, and on the other by liberal political theory, which suggests that even seemingly irrational envy can be defended, must be taken into account, and even made the foundation of a theory of a just democracy. Within psychoanalysis, Freud's idea that envy shadows any human impulse toward justice has been developed and elaborated to emphasize the fundamentally irrational uh, aspect of envy. The important feature of envy for Lacan and others is that this original envy is not produced by desire for a finite good, for example, parental attention in Freud's nursery scenario, which is how Rawls reads it, but instead produced by an antagonistic relationship to the pleasure experienced by another. Lacan often returns to a scene from book one of Augustine's Confessions to make the case that envy is never for an object that would ever be desirable in itself, quoting Augustine's recollection of a jealous baby seeing his foster brother at their, at their nursemaid's breast. The child looks on bitterly while the other nurses, and the scene is offered as evidence for the sinful nature of even the infant Augustine is careful to note that the embittered child is not actually in danger of losing out on any food, for the fountain of milk is richly flowing and abundant. Yet Lacan's innovation here is to imagine that the child might be beyond nursing age, a fact that Augustine does not specify, and I think this is actually a deliberate misreading. Lacan asks, who can say that the child who looks at his younger brother still needs to be at the breast? 
Everyone knows that envy is usually aroused by the possession of goods which would be of no use to the person who is envious of them, and about the true nature of which he does not have the least idea. Asking this rhetorical question allows Lacan to open up a new way of thinking about the child's bitterness and about envy itself, thus disambiguated from a feeling that we might term jealousy, which is typically tied to a desired object, Lacan theorizes envy as pain brought on by the spectacle of another's enjoyment. Seeing his brother at the breast presents an unbearable vision of completeness. It is not that the other child needs or wants the milk. It is that he cannot stand to witness his sibling's pleasure. Following on from Lacan, uh, Joan Kopchak adapts his use of the Augustinian baby. She says, maybe he wanted a Coke. Um, and she takes Rawls to task for his attempt to revise Freud's nursery scene to make it amenable to his theory of justice. Um, and here I'm quoting Kopchak. Ignorant of the structure of pleasure, which as Freud taught is only ever partial, never complete, and believing naively that complete satisfaction is attainable by anyone who, unimpeded by bad fortune, sets about realizing a rational plan, Rawls is not well positioned to see that the need for recognition of one's desire is also the occasion of envy." As she puts it, Rawls attempts to account for the presence of different desires and pleasures, the individual pursuit of happiness, but she reminds us of the bedrock distrust of others and the other that thwarts this pursuit before it begins. Again, Kopchak, quote, I am willing to place myself behind a veil of ignorance to abstract myself from my pathological self-interest in order to determine what is fair, but I do not know what she is doing behind her burqa." From an individual's dissatisfaction that demands equal dissatisfaction in others, the psychoanalytic critique moves seamlessly to politics, from sibling rivalry to the impossibility of a shared Jerusalem. As Kopchak puts it, there is no whole, no all of Jerusalem to be shared, because there is no big other to recognize and bestow affection equally on all of its citizens. It is owing to arguments like these that psychoanalysis has been understood as incapable of formulating a politics. It posits a theory, most recognizable in Freud's civilization and its discontents, that the individual subject is fundamentally in tension with the social order. It can describe our social and political failures, yet does not seem capable of offering a Freudian theory of justice. Yet, psychoanalytic thinkers persist in turning Freudian thought to political ends. Theorists like Alain Badiou and Slavoj Žižek, influenced by Lacan, make political interventions and write political philosophy. Recently, film theorist um, and psychoanalytic critic Todd McGowan, in his book Enjoying What We Don't Have, makes the case for envy as both fundamental block to social harmony and a means forward for developing a truly successful psychoanalytic ethics, or sorry, politics. He begins with the observation that psychoanalysis is, uh, not only posits a fundamental antagonism between individual and society, but rejects the very idea of the pursuit of the good that, uni that unifies political theory since Aristotle's politics. Like Kopchak, he goes straight to Rawls as a target, the political theorist par excellence for whom competing desires are ultimately solvable. Yet he posits that the good itself, not our failures to achieve it, is the problem. And again, this is the fundamental political insight that psychoanalysis brings to the table, because the good is only constituted by its prohibition. 
McGowan goes over familiar psychoanalytic territory, saying that the belief that the other holds a secret enjoyment that the subject has sacrificed renders the smooth functioning of collective life impossible. The force that allows human beings to come together to form a society in common language is at once the force that prevents any society from working out. The structure of the signifier produces societies replete with subjects paranoid about and full of envy for the enjoying other. And this, for him, is why equality doesn't solve the problem of social antagonism. Rather than eliminating the envy of the other's enjoyment, a sense of justice exacerbates it. Unusually, he offers a solution, um, <clears throat> and that is to recognize that the other's enjoyment is the enjoyment of loss because there is no other kind. As subjects of loss, there is no barrier to the establishment of an authentic social bond, one where envy does not play a key role. And in this scenario, and this I'm quoting from the slide, envy is no longer inevitable. There can be no hierarchy of loss because everyone alike loses nothing. And he concludes, the authentic society of subjects connected through the embrace of trauma would be a society that could recognize that nothing is something <coughs> after all. Okay, so what would that look like, um, the society of subjects uh, joined by loss and trauma? McGowan's attention to the enjoyment of loss produces some quite sharp readings of books and films, including the work of the political documentary filmmaker Michael Moore. McGowan observes, rightly I think, that Moore's films work when they put his audience on the side of enjoyment against authority, as in uh, the film Roger and Me, which features we, the little guys, against the CEO of General Motors in Detroit. And they don't work so well when they put us on the side of knowledge and authority, policing obscene enjoyment, as in Fahrenheit 9-11, which features we, the knowledgeable, against the ignorant George W. Bush. His most compelling political example is the suggestion to shift progressive discourse on immigration from the insistence that no one is illegal and to instead recognize that no one is legal the shift offers a politics of identification with the missing signifier, in this case, the absence of access to an idealized justice. It does not offer the key to full citizenship for all, but addresses the absence of full citizenship of any subjects. He explains, quote, we must work to reveal how those inside are themselves already excluded. He suggests that instead of working directly to expand the umbrella of rights to include more of those excluded, the political act would involve the refusal on the part of those on the inside to accept the benefits that insider status provides. Such a program might seem hopelessly idealistic. Who would give up their rights? But it does have the advantage of acknowledging a truth. None of us are fully legal in the sense of universal and unimpeded access to justice via voting in the court system. And one can see an example of potential political acts of refusal in recent discussions of white privilege in the United States in the wake of the increased visibility of police shootings and other forms of racial injustice. So that's the psychoanalytic approach to envy. But even liberal political theorists have started taking envy seriously. And that's the, the second <clears throat> example on the slide. Jeffrey Edward Green the political philosopher whose book The Shadow of Unfairness gives me the shadow in my own title, defends even the most supposedly irrational version of envy, the envy that wishes to make the powerful worse off even if doing so worsens one's own condition. The desire to take the milk away even when I don't really want to drink it. 
He argues that given the shadow of unfairness that persists even in the most advanced liberal democratic states, quote, where ordinary citizens are confined by remove and manyness, where representation is too uncertain to ever be fully definitive, and where plutocracy advantages the civic opportunities of the wealthy, there is a legitimate place for singling out the most advantaged class for unique regulatory attention. And further, there are some special circumstances when it is not irrational to impose costs on the most advantaged that have neutral or even negative material effects on the rest of society. Where Rawls allows the possibility of reasonable envy, reasonable if a person's lesser position is so pronounced that it wounds his self-respect, or if he believes that inequality is the result of injustice or mere luck that serves no compensatory social purpose, where Rawls merely excuses these forms of envy and seeks to minimize them, Green argues that such envy is inevitable and should be taken seriously as diagnosing the limits of any system of liberal democracy and any attempt at distributive justice undertaken within it. He notes that the category of the least advantage often serves a heuristic function. We measure a society by how it treats its weakest members. And we evaluate a society's approach to social justice by identifying the expectations and situations of the lowest class. With envy, Green finds justification for greater regulatory attention to the most advantaged class, the logic for seeking redress against the super rich. Such regulation and the validation of what he calls a plebeian vulgar perspective um, would not eliminate inequality and would not even make envy disappear, but would, Green argues, allow private happiness to remain protected from political unhappiness. He attempts to recover ancient democratic notions of egalitarianism that include, quote, the tendency periodically not to care about politics, end quote, a luxury that right now sounds very enticing indeed. At the end of this quick and hopefully not too bewildering sketch of some political theories having to do with envy, I'm left asking whether envy is a rational response to a world of limited resources, as well as a legitimate response to a social system that is bound to produce inequalities, or whether envy in its most basic form is fundamentally unreasonable, a testament to the false consciousness of justice itself. I'd like to suggest that certain properties of the emotion of envy might begin to point us in a helpful direction, those properties being scene-setting and future-oriented narratives. The feelings of envy and resentment both conjure up a scene and involve predictions about the future. Sociologist Pierre Bourdieu has plenty to say about the conditions of resentment. He summarizes that resentment is um, the emotion that guides all those who condemn the established order only because it recognizes them less than they recognize it in their very revolt and cannot recognize in them the value it recognizes officially. Um, and he also outlines the way that political choices, more than any other choices, involve the more or less explicit and systematic representation an agent has of the social world, of his position within it, and of the position he ought to occupy. Similarly, for C.N. Nye, envy, like the other ugly feelings she writes about, is diagnostic. And she says, competitiveness and envy both tend to call up some idea or mental representation, however fleeting, of the social field as an articulated and differentiated totality. Both are responses to 
to the potentially unequal distribution of a limited resource across this field, whether it be affect, capital, rights, or other symbolic goods. Naya also notes the temporality of envy and its counterpart, competition. She tells us that envy is focused on diagnosing an immediate situation, but doesn't make plans to change it. She says envy is an affect that likes dark corners. And she contrasts this with a dynamic and future-oriented competitiveness, which wants to be circulated and shared. This makes it highly contagious and prone to being atmospheric in a way in which envy is not. Yet envy, like all emotions, is still a response to change. This can be a perceived actual change or an imaginary possible change. Bourdieu also places po political resentment in a framework of temporality, <clears throat> observing that social groups are oriented toward the future or toward the past. He says that conflicts arise from the opposition between values and lifestyles that bring with them economic or cultural capital and those, and those that don't. In other words, those groups whose reproduction and the culture can be taken for granted look to the future and are what he calls liberal conservatives, and those whose collective future is threatened become resentful and reactionary. So to sum up, envy and associated emotions involve a sense of actual or anticipated change and a sketch of an unequal social field. And in what follows, I take up this constellation of affects, envy, competition, resentment, as all have something to having something to tell us about the relationships among emotions, inequality, and justice. So with Bourdieu and Nye, we already find ourselves in the realm of the literary, the realm of representation and narrative. I propose a turn to medieval literature, most pra pragmatically because I'm a medie medievalist, but also because medieval genres have a particular commitment to the exploration of the individual emotional experience, often through the category of sin or vice, and to the conjuring of a vision of the social realm that can be usefully abstract. The medieval dream vision is particularly prone to offering a capacious representation of the social field, one ordinarily unattainable from a waking perspective. There's the famous opening of William Langland's Piers Plowman, which speaks of a fair field of folk, of all manner of men, the mean and the rich, working and wandering as the world asketh. Chaucer's Parliament of Fowls, with its vision of birds of every kind that in this world have feathers and stature, assembled before the goddess nature. And then there's the less generous apocalyptic view offered in the first book of John Gower's Vox Clematis, an allegorical vision of a world gone mad. The narrator falls asleep in dreams, goes to gather flowers, and soon encounters various rascally bands of the common mob wandering through the fields in countless throngs. And then there's the poem that I'd like to linger on today, the mid-14th century debate poem, Winner and Waster. And on the slide, I just have some information about the manuscript, which is from the, the 15th century, although the um, poem was com composed in the middle of the 14th century. Um, and the, the citation from Susanna Fine, where I've gotten the manuscript information, and then the edition that I've used, uh, Stephanie Trigg's edition of the poem. So, winner and waster. The tale is a dream vision whose framing prologue promises wise words within that have never before been written down or read in any romance. The narrator went wandering one day in a wood by a meadow filled with flowers, stopping to rest on a hill beneath a hawthorn tree. He quickly falls asleep and is swept up in a dream. 
He thinks he's in the world, yet he doesn't know where. It's a lovely green land bounded by earthworks a mile long. It is a dream space, but also recalls the settings of medieval theater, pageant, and tournament. The dreamer immediately spots two armies arrayed against each other. These are the armies of Winner and Waster. Yet before the battle can get underway, the king bids a knight to interrupt for fear that any exchange of blows will lead to utter destruction on both sides. The military pomp and circumstance is revealed to be at least somewhat allegorical in any event, as the forces arrayed under various heraldic banners are not only foreign fighting troops, French, Lombard, Spanish men, but estates that have no business on the tournament field. Lawyers, Franciscan friars, Dominicans and Carmelites, Augustinians and merchants in alignment against the more expected squires and bowmen. A representative of each army, each army accompanies the knight to the king's pavilion, where they are asked to explain who they are and why they are at such odds. The king will deliver judgment based on their testimony rather than physical violence. The first declares himself to be winner a man who helps the entire world, for he teaches lords by his example. He loves those who spare and spend carefully, living upon little ones, and his heart gladdens when his goods gather and build up. He declares himself unlike this fell false thief waster who stands before the king ready to strike and destroy winner forever. He sets the contrast. All that I win through wit, he wastes through pride. I gather, I glean, and he lets go soon. I prick and I preen, and he the purse opens. Winner accuses Waster of letting his own lands lie fallow, selling off his looms, letting his dovecoats go to ruins, his fishing pond go dry. Winner, by his own lights, is a producer and saver, while Waster produces nothing, spends all. According to Winner, uh, Waster's only possessions in his large empty houses are weapons, eager hounds, and a gilded horse to ride. If this wicked, wearied thief lives long enough, Winner says, he will destroy this land. Winner names himself. He says, I, Ehot Winner, I am called Winner. But he also names Waster via gossip. Waster men calls. So who are Winner and Waster? <clears throat> Despite the clergy that make up a good deal of Winner's army, he is traditionally taken to stand for an increasingly powerful and wealthy middle class, while Waster stands for the military class and landed gentry. As medieval scholar uh, James Simpson puts it elegantly, if a bit over simply, Winner is the retentive merchant and Waster is the spending noble. Winner and Waster also stand for more abstract qualities, as we learn in the course of the debate, that Winner stands for thrift and good husbandry, from his own perspective, miserliness from the point of view of Waster. And Waster stands for extravagant spending and high living from Winner's perspective and generosity from his own. Thomas Festel places the two figures in the literary his historical context of personifications of the vices of prodigality and avarice, as well as Aristotelian conceptions of liberality as a mean between these two vices. The teachings of Aristotle's ethics make their way into sermons and penitential manuals, such as the manual translated by Chaucer in the Parson's Tale. The Parson explains that largesse is a remedy for the sin of avarice, but one must be careful not to give unmeasurably, for such is fool largesse, which men call waste. Bestuel successfully establishes the place of winner and waster in the tradition of opposing vices, 
the language of opposing avarice to prodigality that extends from pretentious uh, psychomachia down through Elizabethan drama. Yet while one can find such opposition in a variety of places, it is rarely given dramatic dialogic form and never otherwise focuses on the affective states of the hoarding or prodigal person in opposition to each other. So although envy is not a term of description in the poem, lovely image is uh, from Giotto's uh, cycle of frescoes in the arena chapel, um, including the uh, virtues of the vices, and that is envy. Um, the dialogue very clearly focuses our attention on the competition between two individuals who experience a painful relationship to the other rooted in their own antagonistic relationships within the material world. They are not haves and have-nots, but figures who see their own version of pleasure in materiality as singularly virtuous, and thus by definition threatened by the version embodied in the other. The canonical definition of envy in the Middle Ages, often attributed to Augustine, has it that envy is sorrow in the neighbor's joy and joy in his sorrow. We will see that the opposing economic and affective relationship of winner and waster is portrayed as inevitable and inevitably intertwined, and that this opposition mimics the structure of envy. And I think the example from uh, the Parsons tale, Chaucer's um, uh, Parsons tale, gives the most uh, common de definition of envy in its kind of canonical chiastic form, right? It's sorrow of other men's well, of their fortune, and joy of other men's harm. It is possible, then, that the opposition between winner and waster might be understood to be the instantiation of envy at the level of the social. Waster responds to winner's accusations and the debate begins in earnest. Winner has spoken high words, but waster has a, a tale that will teen him the better. It will cause him pain. A tale aimed um, at directly at causing that pain. He chides winner for warping the walls of his house so stuffed is it with sacks of wool. The roof beams bend because they hang so heavy with sides of bacon, and steel chests sit filled with sterling coins. He asks pointedly, what should worth of that well if no waste come? What is all that good for if no one is going to come and spend it? If not for the wasters of the world, all those goods would go to rot, rust, and the rats. Why not give your hoarded goods to the people and the poor, he asks. For if winner would simply walk in the world and find the truth of things, he would weep for pity at the vast numbers of the poor. As it stands, his hoarding and sparing amidst such suffering will send his soul to hell. As they debate, winner and waster create antitheses that often amount to incompatible ways of viewing the world. Waster chides winner for tossing and turning in his bed, keeping himself in the, and uh, his neighbors awake as he worries over his goods a conventional image of the merchant, and Winner counters with the accusation that it is Waster who destroys his goods while feasting and waking on winter nights. Waster, he says, does not even experience a moment of possession, for there's no wealth in the world that is not spent before he even gets it. He spends lavishly on clothing his men, drinking away his wealth in the tavern. And it is Waster and his ilk, says Winner, who are destined for hell. Waster responds that all that feasting feeds the poor and thus pleases Christ. Better to share wealth with his people than to hide it away in coffers that no son may see. 
Waster is persuasive and surprisingly sympathetic until perhaps we get to the moment in which he rejects not only winter, but Fridays, fasting days, saints days, any church-required days of abstinence and asceticism, revealing himself to be motivated more by pleasure-seeking than by charity. The poem threatens to shift modes from verbal debate back into physical violence when Waster curses judges, including the infamous Chief Justice William Sherschel. <clears throat> he asks the king to let us swathe with our swords swinging together. Let's get back to the armies right, that we found at the beginning of the poem, and let's actually have a physical fight. Um, and this desire for violence hangs in the air. Winner's rejoinder comes in at a, at a higher pitch with its continued critique of this wretched waster. And it is this atmosphere of words that substitute for violence that permeates Winner's third response. At this moment, he launches into a lengthy description of a feast prepared by Waster for his few followers. Boar's head, buck's haunches and broth, venison with frumenty, roast meat, meat pies, royal spices, roasted goat, quartered swans, 10-inch tarts, skewers of various birds. Each diner served enough for six men. And all of this pains the heart of Winner, just thinking about this guy sitting down to this lavish feast is, is painful. Um, and all of this envious pain, it must be observed, the pain at the good fortune of another, belongs to Winner at this point of, in the poem, not Waster, who is angered at the accusations leveled upon him, but not much bothered emotionally by Winner's hoarding ways. In his next response, Waster seems to argue for the status quo, for lords to be lords and lads to be lads. Spending must be done. He asks, would you have lords live as lads on foot? Let lords live as they wish, lads as falls to them. For lords, the bacon and the beef, the bitterns and the swans. For lads, the rough rye bread and the thin gruel. And then Waster assures us that some good morsel will fall to the poor to mend with their cheer. He threatens that otherwise the social hierarchy would collapse as animals go uncaught and uneaten, driving the prices down, and thus relieving these lads of any need to serve at all. So far, so oppositional. But an alternative reading is possible, one that positions Waster and Winner as supplements to each other rather than opposing forces. It is Waster who articulates the most striking summation of the imbrication of economics, social roles, and the circulation of affect. Who so well shall win, a Waster must he find. As Lois Roney notes in an essay on Winner and Waster and economic theory, the first line resonates as proverbial wisdom, yet it is unattested elsewhere in the literature. The poem's first modern editor notes that this line is evidently a proverb, though he cites no other occurrence. A collection of pre-1500 proverbs includes the line, who so well shall win, a waster must he find, but cites only winner and waster. Roney agrees that the line is proverb-like, for it has balance, antithesis, brevity, alliteration, rhythm, practicality, and self-evident good sense. Um, and whether it has self-evident good sense, I would be interested um, to hear from you, because some people call this a paradoxical idea, and some, for some it sort of explains the entire poem. Um, and also economics in general. Um, but it was not, Roni says, a proverb when the poet wrote the line, nor did it later become one in Middle English. Her essay is centered on the argument that the line, who so well shall win, a waster must he find, is not traditional wisdom in the 14th century and is in fact quite a new idea. 
while modern readers have assumed that our current economic knowledge, the basic fact that all economic activities in a nation are interconnected, is proverbial wisdom, such was not the case in 14th century economic thought. The breakthrough idea, she says, is the fact that circular flow theory and economic theory developed in the 17th century is shown operating on the national level here in a 14th century poem. The poet has abstracted the totals of the two economic behaviors nationally and personified them as two armed debaters standing before their king, complaining angrily about each other's actions and attitudes. Their interrelationship on the national level is what is new and it ties the whole poem together. Roney emphasizes the didacticism of the poem. As most, most debates do, it tries to instruct its audience, most immediately Edward III. In this case, the lesson is that all economic activity is intertwined. The health of the nation is at stake, and neither extreme hoarding and refusal of consumption nor extreme spending and profligacy serve that health. She suggests that both figures are thus bad examples, and we are to understand the necessity of moderation in economic behavior an economic version of the moral Aristotelian argument for the mean. And I have no quarrel with this interpretation, though I think it needs supplementing with an emphasis on the affective register of the poem. Ferroni focuses our attention on the first line in the statement as having proverbial force, leaving the line that follows with its causal affective content unremarked. For if it grieves one gome, it glads another. To grieve and to glad, these terms are simultaneously affective and economic. And they follow the same logic of the standard definition of envy already mentioned, to sorrow in another's joy and to joy in his sorrow. What grieves one person glads another. As Vance Smith puts it, the poem's true innovation is not simply the recognition that Aristotelian economic imperatives of accumulation and expenditure shape the household, but that they are profoundly antithetical, agonistic tendencies that far from defining the work of the household threaten to make it a place of incoherence. I think I would say that they both define the household, or what Smith calls its macrocosmic reflex national economics, and also threatens it with dissolution. For what drives the poem and its entrance for the audience is the anger that pulses through the debate, the threatened violence of the opposing armies, transmuted into dialogue, point and counterpoint. It is the alternation of grief and gladness, always in opposition to the other. And it is the affective charge of the debate that gives real force to the idea that these figures have arrayed armies behind them, ready to fight to the death. While such an image places us in the realm of psychomachia, I'd suggest that the poem does not work only at the level of allegory. As other readers of the poem have noted, it has a satirical edge Though the objects of its satire are unstable and shifting, the merchant class, the land-holding class, the practices of the royal household, the winner and waster remain figures defined by each other, their antagonists. They are those winners who produce and hoard without sharing, enjoying goods only inasmuch as they are inaccessible to others, and they are those wasters who spend without producing, enjoying goods without regard to the future. Each is felt to be a threat to the other and causing pain to the other inasmuch as their mode of relating to the world of goods is seen to call the other's mode into question and devalue it. So one further example uh, to emphasize this po point um, from the poem. Winner responds to Waster's economic theory with more accusa accusations wrapped in resentment. Me wonders in heart of this poor penniless men that Paylor will buy, saddles of Sendale with circles full rich. 
He wonders in his heart about these poor penniless men who buy furs, silk saddles with expensive rings. Lest that they raise their wives' wrath, they follow their desires. And I cannot help but be put in mind a very similar rhetoric that circulates in contemporary US discourse anytime there's discussion of distributive justice. In a widely quoted comment last fall, Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley defended his dedication to repealing the estate tax, what Republicans call the death tax, observing, quote, I think not having the estate tax recognizes the people that are investing as opposed to those that are just spending every darn penny they have, whether it's on booze or women or movies. At moments like these, the debate between winner and waster becomes immediately recognizable as the economic opposition that undergirds emotionally fraught debates about taxation, redistribution, and the common good. These debates are obviously not the same as those in 14th century England, but they call up issues of justice, morality, and cultural honor as they attach to modes of saving and spending, modes that are defined in public discourse by the supposedly opposing party. There are winners and there are wasters. And in these moments, it often comes down to women and wives. Indeed, Winner goes on to accuse Waster of selling wood after wood, tree after tree on his land, following the will of his wife, hoping to God that the tiny seedlings left over will grow up to shade his children. Such is in contrast, he says, to his forefathers who liked to show off the woods to their friends to go hare hunting. But now, he says, it is set and sold, my sorrow is the more, wasted all willfully your wives to pay. Even, though, even worse, those women who had been of old ladies rich are now mesots of the new jet or foolish adherents to the latest fashions. And yet, Winner observes, all those fancy sleeves trailing to the ground, trimmed with ermine, are as hard to handle in the dark as a simple wench who has never won, worn silk. And this is um, an astonishingly context-free bit of misogyny that just sort of erupts in the poem, which is not unheard of in Middle English literature. Um, and I should say that the passage is also corrupt in the single manuscript that we have, so I don't want to hang too much on it. But I think it's notable the kind of quick transition from economic critique to highly sexualized misogynistic, uh, misogynistic rhetoric that kind of the pattern that crops up. So. At this point, Waster is provoked. He wrathly casts up his eye um, at his next turn. And he asks Winner what our clothes have cost him. Right? What, why, do, why does what I wear pain you? They've paid for them, after all. And he says, for thy winner, with wrong thou wastes thy time. He's looking far for wood to waste so that he can warm his heels by the fire. He ends his speech with his pain. He's sore in heart, and it hurts him to see in his sight this soul that he hates. And he asks the king to tell them where to live so that each might be away from the other. So nevertheless seems to accept Waster's logic. He tells Waster, the more thou wastes thy well, the better, better thee winner likes. The more you spend, the more winner likes you. The poem is diagnostic of the economy of affect, or the affective register of economic circulation. If there's no judgment as to who is the worthier figure, and many readers have concluded that they are both bad examples, Waster's diagnosis seems to carry the day. Okay, um, this is part three. This is the, the last and shortest of, of the parts. I don't think it's anachronistic or unhelpfully universalizing 
to suggest that there's a through line from winner and waster to the kinds of antagonistic affects that circulate in contemporary social and economic life. I opened my talk by considering some political theory that addresses envy's threat to social well-being and possible remedies for the inequities produced even in a well-run liberal democracy. And for the record, I'm all for regulating the super rich, as Jeffrey Green suggests. Sounds good. But I'm not sure that such policies would ameliorate antagonism of the kind we see in Winter and Waster, nor in economic and social life more generally. Lois Roney observes that literary debates always take place between members of the same class, whether that class is flowers, the lily and the rose, birds, the owl and the nightingale, seasons, summer and winter. And Winter and Waster are of the class of men who partake in economic activity. So envy too, Aristotle tells us, occurs between members of the same class. He says kings, um, envy kings, potter against potter. Um, and even periods of stark inequality can produce antagonism within a class as much as between the richer and the poorer. As political scientist Catherine Kramer observes in her book, The Politics of Resentment, there are people who do not focus blame on elite decision makers as they try to comprehend an economic recession. Instead, they give their attention to fellow residents who they think are eating their share of the pie. She adjusts the critique made famous by Thomas Frank in What's the Matter with Kansas, the notion that people are distracted from economic concerns by social or cultural issues. She insists that, quote, people are taking economics into account, but these considerations are not raw objective facts. Instead, they are perceptions of who is getting what and who deserves it, and these notions are affected by perceptions of cultural and lifestyle difference. That is, uh, in a politics of resentment, people intertwine economic considerations with social and cultural considerations in the interpretations of the world they make with one another. In Kramer's study of public opinion, she tries to get at the how more than the what of what people think. In doing so, she takes on Bourdieu's critique of political surveys, which tend to address political and social issues, not from the perspective of the actual groups being surveyed, but instead only recognize the questions which the dominant class ask themselves about the groups which are problems for them. She suggests that dynamics like rural consciousness be taken seriously and addressed via representation, legislation, and simply listening to what people have to say. We might also think about the deep stories that Arlie Russell Hochschild uncovers in her book, Strangers in Their Own Land. She explains that, quote, a deep story is a feels-as-if story. It's the story feelings tell, the subjective prism through which the party on the other side sees the world. For the people in Louisiana she speaks with, many of whom were manifestly suffering from the environmental degradation of their property and their health at the hands of corporations, and yet they supported the Tea Party, the Republican Party, and massive deregulation of businesses. That story involves people who hadn't worked as hard as they had, people who should have been behind them in line for success, cutting ahead of them in line with the help of the government. Whereas self-professed liberals like Hochschild were asking them to direct their indignation at the ill-gotten gains of the overly rich, the planters, the right wanted to aim their indignation down at the poor slackers, some of whom were jumping the line. They spoke of makers and takers, and also of an ever scarcer supply of cultural honor. Resentment drives political choices, she found. So if winner and waster are not simply avatars of economic practices, saving and spending, 
but might in some way stand for a subjective prism, how might that open up how we think about the poem as commenting on the affective dimension of economic life within a community? And that's a genuine question that I have. Um, I'll give one more striking and anachronistic parallel, um, this time not between winner and a Republican politician, but between Waster and the protagonist of Italian novelist Elena Ferrante's Neapolitan Quartet. So these novels are also about questions of envy and competition, and they're among the most perceptive writings on the topic I've encountered, other than medieval literature. The protagonist, Elena, or Lenu, can only think of her own life as a response to in com competition with her closest friend, Lila. In the third installment in the series, Elena tells us, quote, her life continuously appears in mine, in the words that I've uttered, in which there's often an echo of hers, in a particular gesture that is an adaptation of a gesture of hers, in my less, which is such because of her, more, in my more, which is the yielding to the force of her, less. She visits Lila in a sausage factory where Lila works after she herself has become a published, a published author and wife of a university professor. Quote, I had made that whole journey mainly to show her what she had lost and what I had won. But she had known from the moment I appeared and now risking tensions with her workmates and fines, she was explaining to me that I had won nothing, that in the world there is nothing to win that her life was full of varied and foolish adventures as much as mine, and that time simply slipped away without any meaning. Lila's wisdom, at least as perceived by Elena, echoes, I'm sure unknowingly, the closing of Waster's final speech, as he turns from his predic prediction that Winner's estate will be divided among wicked executors while Winner burns in hell, to an explanation of his ethos of taking the goods of the world as they fall being happy with what one has. Take the cup as it comes, the case as it falls. Eschew jealousy, your mate to win as a man should. He says, hent her that her hob shall and hold her his wheel. Take her that you wish to have and hold her your while. And I'm pretty sure this is a Middle English version of love the one you're with. He closes uh, with an image of waste that no longer means spending or misusing goods or land but simply the using up of earthly resources as the necessary corollary of human comfort and longevity. He who lives long will have to limp long to fetch wood to waste to warm his feet. For if one cuts down the nearby woods, one will have to seek farther and farther the longer one lives. These words, both Elena's and Waster's, are close to Todd McGowan's prescription that envy can only be overcome via a focus on shared loss and vulnerability. But I'm not sure about the transferability of an individual acceptance of loss to a political acceptance, or the idea that in the world there is nothing to win can provide solutions in a political world in which winners and losers, not to mention winners and wasters, are constantly being created, both in economic terms and in terms of the stories we tell and live by. There are lots of partial solutions on offer. McGowan understands the relationship between envy and politics, uh, Jeffrey Green gets the effective nature of, uh, of political unhappiness, but I don't think these problems can be solved economically, for that unhappiness is about feeling one's own relationship to economics and one's own enjoyment um, being validated. It's possible, though, that these views of the social field provided by literature, the dreamscapes of medieval narrative, and the oscillation between an aerial view of advancing armies 
and an embodied dialogic interpersonal aggression in Winner and Waster, and the unfolding of a lifetime of friendship and competition in Elena Ferrante's novels can give us both a poignant understanding of the agonies of envy and a macrosocial view of how fortune and affect circulate. Catherine Kramer advocates listening. Arlie Hochschild speaks about bridging the empathy wall. It's hard to imagine Winner and Waster ever sitting down to dinner together, but understanding their deep entanglements and dependence on each other, perhaps even within the same person, might be a start. Thank you. Thank you.